This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Exodus chapter 4, verses 18 to 31. Today, we continue our sermon series on the life of Moses. This morning, I want to talk to you about taking care of business, taking care of business. Exodus chapter 4, I'll begin reading at verse 18. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Exodus chapter 4, let me begin at verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and he said to him, let me go back to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt for all the men who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. And he took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At the time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the desert to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain of God and kissed him. Then Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about all the miraculous signs he had commanded him to perform. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. When they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Sometimes life doesn't go as planned. At least that's what the marriage counselor thought when the middle-aged couple entered his office for counseling. The marriage for years had been full of snide comments and cold conversations, explosive arguments. The marriage had become a marathon of misery. The husband was overwhelmingly insensitive and dull. And the wife, she was wound pretty tightly, and she was domineering. The counselor welcomed them into his office, invited them to take a seat, and asked the question, how may I help you? The husband slouched in his seat. He stared at a carpet square on the ground. He occasionally gave a grunt, either as a word of affirmation or a word of rebuttal. The wife, oh, she launched into a 
laundry list of issues that they had had since day one. She could effectively and quite convincingly trace all the problems back to her pathetic excuse of a husband, which was exhibit A, seated to her right. She talked. The husband stared. The counselor listened. After about 20 to 25 nonstop minutes of listening to her speak, 90 miles an hour, the counselor stood up from his chair, went around to the front of his desk, picked the woman up by her shoulders, and planted on her the most passionate kiss you can ever imagine. The kiss was long, quite romantic. It appeared to be enjoyable by both parties. When he had finished, he sat her back down in her seat and he returned to his chair. For the first time since the couple had entered the room, she had nothing to say. And the husband was no longer staring at the carpet square on the floor. The counselor leaned in. He looked at the man and he said, your wife needs that every week, twice a week. The man leaned back in his chair and thoughtfully scratched his chin. He said, I could bring her in here on Tuesdays and Thursdays if that's convenient for your schedule. It was at that moment that the counselor thought to himself, sometimes life doesn't go as planned. When you and I catch up with Moses, he's having the same kind of thought. Sometimes life doesn't go as planned. He'd been in the Midian desert for 40 years. He was dramatically called by God through a burning bush that was on fire but not being consumed. He offered up every excuse imaginable about why he was not the right man for the job. And repeatedly, God insisted, now go. And you tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Eventually, Moses acquiesced. He agreed with God, said he would go and do this God-sized task. In our passage, he also receives the blessing of his father-in-law, Jethro. The Lord had said to Moses, the people who were looking to kill you in Egypt, they're all dead now. That had to be a little bit reassuring. You'll remember that It had been 40 years since Moses stepped on Egyptian soil. It was 40 years prior that he had committed murder. He had murdered an an Egyptian taskmaster, buried the evidence in the sand. When news of this got back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh himself said, I will kill Moses. Moses was a fugitive. He ran to the east, to the Midian Desert. He found favor with a Midian priest named Jethro. Jethro gave him one of his daughters as a wife. Moses settled down and he started a family for four decades. He had helped on the family farm. By this time, Moses is 80 years old. He'd already resigned himself to the reality that he would die in the Midian desert. And then God stepped in on a very ordinary day and did something spectacular. And now he had a God-sized task. Scripture says that uh, Moses took his wife and his sons and the staff of God. His wife, we know her, we've met her, her name, Zipporah. His sons, 
Now, wait a minute. We've met the firstborn son, but your text says what my text says. It's plural, sons. There has to be more than one. So the first son we've met, his name is Gershom. It's not until Exodus 18 that we are told that before Moses left Egypt, left for Egypt, God gave him another son. This other son is named Eliezer. So apparently, Moses takes his wife and his two sons, Gershom and Eliezer, and they set off for Egypt. We're also told that he took the staff of God in his hand. That's an interesting way of talking about this staff. In Exodus chapter 4 verse 2, it's just a staff. It's just a shepherd's staff. Nothing more, nothing less, an ordinary staff. But here in Exodus chapter 4 verse 23, just about 20 verses later, it has become the staff of God. What happened? Well, Moses was told by God, you're going to do some mighty miraculous things. I'll give you some signs and wonders. For example, take that staff in your hand and throw it to the ground. And he did, and it became a slithering serpent. Moses began to retreat. You would too. Then the Lord said, pick up that snake by the tail. Moses thought, okay. So he reached down and picked it back up, and the snake became a staff again. The Lord said to Moses, take your hand and put it inside your cloak. He put it into his jacket. When he pulled it out, his hand had leprosy all over it. It was white as snow. He looked at it and thought, how did that happen? And then for a second time, the Lord said, put your leprous hand back in your jacket. Bring it back out a second time. And when he did that, his skin was as smooth as his flesh had ever been. The Lord said, I'll give you those two wonders and signs. You share that with the people. They'll believe you. In the beginning of that conversation, the Lord simply said to Moses, hey, what's that in your hand? A staff. It's just an ordinary stick. It's a staff. It's what a shepherd has. After all, he's a seasoned shepherd, been doing it for 40 years now. It's just a stick. Okay, I'm going to use that stick. When we get to our passage, that stick, that staff, that shepherd's crook has become the staff of God. What's the difference? The difference is he submitted it unto the Lord. God can take something that's so ordinary and make it extraordinary if you and I just simply submit it unto God. Surrender it unto the Lord. This morning, my friend, the Lord is saying to you, hey, what's in your hand? What's at your disposal? What just ordinary gift, talent, ability, or resource do you have that you can submit and surrender unto me? Because if you take that which is just ordinary and you give it unto God, he will make it extraordinary. You think to yourself, it's just a love for children. It's just an ability to sing. It's just a desire to teach. It's just the the, the, the way I've been brought up. I know how to put a good meal on the table and welcome people into my house. It's just something that I like to do. All those things, my friends, are spiritual gifts. Ordinary things submitted unto God and they become extraordinary things. This was the staff of God. It is with that ordinary stick that's now the staff of God that Moses is going to strike the Nile River and it's going to turn to blood. Now this is going to be extremely powerful, not only because the water is going to be turned to blood, but the Nile in the Egyptian culture was the source and sustenance of life. So he was going to say by his God, that, that God is the source of life. God is the sustenance, not the Nile River. Because my God can take an ordinary staff, he can strike it and turn the water into blood. 
Oh, Moses will take that staff. He will take the children of Israel into the desert. They will be parched and thirsty. And the Lord will instruct him, you take that staff, strike the rock, and water will gush. And all of the Israelites will have water to drink. That's a powerful staff of God. So when it comes time for Moses to leave for Egypt, he takes his wife and his sons. They've never been to Egypt before. And he takes the staff of God. He's not going to let that thing go because God's going to use that. It's an ordinary stick submitted and surrendered unto God. And that which is ordinary becomes extraordinary in the hands of the Lord. As they're making their way, we are told that God gave Moses the divine playbook. He said, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to go down to Pharaoh and you're going to say, let my people go. And I am going to harden his heart. He gives a foreshadowing of the plagues. God's going to give 10 plagues. Each plague will grow more intense than the previous plague. The, the way Pharaoh will respond is going to be predictable. At first, he's going to say, there's no way that I'm going to let the Israelites go. God's going to send a plague. And then Pharaoh will acquiesce and he will say, yes, I will let them go. Moses, if you could just tell your God to remove this plague. And God removes the plague. And when the plague is gone, so is the promise of Pharaoh. And each time Pharaoh's heart will grow colder and harder. Eventually, there'll be the 10th plague. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. Now, God will give provision for his children. The death angel will pass over any house that has the blood of the spotless lamb on its doorframe. A house that's covered by the blood of the lamb, that house will live. But any house that is not covered by the blood of the lamb, that house will perish. The firstborn in that house will certainly die. And here in our passage, God foreshadows what he's going to do. He shows the playbook. He pulls back the curtain just a bit. He lets Moses in on what's going to happen. He says, you're going to go down there and you're going to say, let my people go. For Israel is my firstborn son. And they need to go and worship me. But Pharaoh, you refused. And because you refused, the Lord says, I will kill your firstborn son. And on that given night, that's exactly what happens. The firstborn son in all of Egypt, including livestock, even Pharaoh's household, they all perished. When you and I read the first six verses of our passage, we, we like it. We appreciate the first six verses, don't we? I mean, we love it when God flexes his muscles just a bit, don't we? We love it when God shows up and shows off. We love it when God gives us a sneak peek preview of what he's going to do, upcoming attractions. Oh, we love it when we hear that the cancer patient is miraculously healed. We love to hear that the door of employment has been flung open wide for our friends, our family members, even for ourselves. Oh, we love it when marriages are built back on the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we just marvel and we, and we love it when a prodigal is found and comes home. We love it when God shows up and shows off. We really appreciate the first six verses because we love when God just flexes his muscles just a bit. Yeah, we appreciate the first six verses. We, we admire the last five verses, don't we? It's in those last five verses that 
Uh, Moses is reunited with his brother Aaron. It's been 40 years since they've seen each other. And where do they meet? The mountain of God. That very place where God shows up. And they have a worship service. And what happens? They embrace each other. They kiss each other. For they have not seen each other in 40 years. And Moses tells Aaron, you're not going to believe what God has asked me to do. He's asked me to come down and liberate the children of Israel from captivity. Look, these are some of the things that God has empowered me to do. He shows the signs and wonders and Aaron believes. They go back down to Egypt. Aaron assembles all the elders of Israel. He says, guys, you need to hear what my brother has to say. Moses, tell him about the bush. Moses, tell him about the snake. Moses, tell him about the hand in the jacket kind of thing. Moses, you show them and you tell them God's task that's been given to you. And Moses did. And what happened? The people believed. They believed him. They bowed down and they worshiped him. Oh, we love a story that ends well, don't we? We love the last five verses. We can admire them because we appreciate it when God really shows up in such grand splendor that he makes the rough places smooth. Because if you stop and think about it, all the fear of Moses did not come to fruition. You remember the excuses that Moses gave to God? I can't go there because I've got a stuttering problem. They'll laugh at me because I stutter. Yet did anybody laugh at him? Not one. He said, I can't go down there because they'll make fun and they'll ridicule this great call of God that you've placed upon my life. Did anybody ridicule Moses? No, it says they believed him. God, you've got the wrong man for the job. You need to choose somebody else. What if they ask me, what is your name? Then what am I supposed to tell them? Did any person ask Moses, give us the name of the God that sent you to us? No. None of his fears came to fruition. Can anybody give testimony of Moses today? Can anybody give testimony that there's been a time in your life when God has given you a God-sized task? Initially, you responded to it with fear. And then God gave you faith and you walked through it and you accomplished it in faith only to realize that none of your fears came to fruition. Oftentimes our fears are far greater than any facts of our everyday life. Anybody know what that's like? I do. I know what it's like to want to respond in fear, say, God, I can't do that. I'm not the right one. I'm not able. And all the while for God to remind me, yes, I am. I am the one who can do this. Oh, we, we appreciate the first six verses, don't we? And we admire the last five verses, don't we? But it's those middle three verses. That makes us uncomfortable. It's awkward just a bit, wouldn't you say? Let me reread the awkward section for you. Verse 24, 25, and 26. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. So the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. If you believe like I do, that Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch, 
then maybe you say in your mind what I say in my mind, Moses, why did you include that part of the story? Why didn't you just omit it? Why did you just kind of bypass that? We love the first six verses. We admire the last five verses. But those middle three, why did you just kind of forget to put that in the sacred script? This is, this is not the first three verses that any evangelist I know will use at a revival service. This is probably not the passage that came to the apostle's mind when the Spirit of God said to him, now stand up and preach on the day of Pentecost. Okay, let's turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 24. I promise you, the apostle Peter did not think of that. This is not the passage that any father I know looks forward to with family devotions. You're going to have family devotions with your kids before you tuck them into bed And your wife says, okay, children, tonight daddy's going to tell us that great story of when God nearly killed his servant and uh, Zipporah took a flint knife to Junior's boy parts. Okay, let's all gather around. (laughs) Who does that? Who's going to talk about that? Why put such an awkward passage in the scripture? You know, I also believe that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for teaching and rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, why is it there? It makes everybody in the house uncomfortable, and rightfully so. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Literally, verse 24 says that when they came to the lodging place, the Lord met him and was about to kill him. The first question when you come to verses 24, 25, and 26 is, who is the him? Now, if your translation is like my translation, the NIV translation interprets the him for us. It says it's Moses. And it could be. But if you look closely at your translation, probably it has the word Moses in brackets. That kind of sets you off as the reader to say, you know what? There's a little bit of a question as regarding who the him ought to be. Now, the NIV and other translations quickly put it in there and say, it's Moses. The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. It could be. Moses could be the accurate translation of who the him ought to be. If it is Moses, why would God kill him? You may say, well, you have no right to ask that. God can do whatever pleases God. Yes, I understand that. But still, it begs the question, um, why would God call Moses in such dramatic fashion in chapter 3 only to then turn around and kill him in chapter 4? You must agree with me that that sounds a bit odd. It seems a bit odd for God to say, I'm going to kill Moses the very moment he agrees to do this God-sized task that I have for him to do. So maybe it is Moses, but I have questions about that. The thinking goes something like this, that that the Lord wanted to, to kill Moses, needed to stop him dead in his tracks, that before he went forward, he placed a, a serious illness on the servant. And maybe that's what God did. But there's another pretty common understanding of the hymn that the hymn could have been Gershom, the firstborn son, that the Lord met him and was about to kill 
him. He was about to kill the firstborn son of Moses. I think that that flows better, more logically within the text. Because in verse 23, the Lord says, this is what I'm going to do to Pharaoh's firstborn son. And speaking of firstborn sons, in verse 24, Moses, let me tell you what I'm going to do with your firstborn son. And then in verse 25, it's only because of Zipporah, the wife who circumcises young Gershom or old Gershom, however old he is. He, he, he is circumcised by his own mother and she takes the foreskin and she, she touches near the feet of Moses and she says, you are a, a bridegroom of blood to me or you are a bloody husband. It's not necessarily a negative term. It just simply means that now we're all covered under the blood. And parenthetically, we're told that the Lord relented because of what, Zip, what uh, Zipporah did. And all of this is because of circumcision. So I, I think probably the hymn ought to be Gershom, the firstborn son, not Moses. But regardless of whether it's Moses that God was going to kill or his firstborn son, regardless, there's a bigger question. And the bigger question is why? Why is God going to kill anybody? Why is he going to kill either Moses or Gershom? What in the world? What is God doing? Once again, you could say, Pastor, you have no right to ask that question. God is big. He never makes a mistake. Whatever he wants to do, he can do. And I get that. There's no one who has a greater supremacy and sovereignty of understanding of the Lord than I do. I understand that God is supremely sovereign. But I don't think that God leaves us without good reason of why he does what he does in this text. So what's God up to? The reason, the reason God does this, and don't miss this truth, the reason God does this is because of the disobedience of Moses. Don't miss that truth. The reason God acts in this way is because of the disobedience of Moses. This is a story about circumcision. Circumcision is the outward sign of the covenant. It was given in Genesis 17 to Father Abraham. And from that moment on, it was declared that every Hebrew male boy that was born must be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, it's questionable whether Moses was circumcised on the eighth day or not. It's highly questionable uh, whether the Israelites... Um, strictly enforced circumcision during the years of captivity. In fact, Joshua says that that's one of the reasons why that generation has to die in the desert because of this partial circumcision, this uh, reproach of the Egyptians. So it's questionable whether or not Moses was actually circumcised on the eighth day. But this much we probably can safely assume that when he came into the care of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household, Pharaoh would have subjected him to a partial circumcision which was part of the Egyptian custom. A partial circumcision was offensive to Israelites. They said, why are you doing it partially? This is, this is an affront against God. This is a disobedience to the word of God. So Moses probably had a partial circumcision until he gets to Midian. And when he is given the wife of Jethro, Jethro would have demanded for Moses to be circumcised before he could be married. So by the time you get to the story, Moses is circumcised, all right? Whether it happened on the eighth day, whether it happened on his wedding day, I don't know. But at some point, he was fully circumcised in obedience to the word of God. The issue here is that Moses did not circumcise his sons. 
Moses did not. It's not that he didn't know the word of God. He just disobeyed the word of God. He was not subjecting his sons to obedience to God's word. It is the responsibility of the father as the spiritual leader of the household to subject his family uh, to obedience to God's word. And Moses did not circumcise his sons. What makes this story so sad, in fact, the saddest part of the story is that God stops Moses dead in his tracks. He stops him dead in his tracks before he's going to go down and liberate the Israelites. God stops him dead in his tracks. And even that potential killing of his son does not motivate him to obedience. That's the saddest part of the story. If God has his sights set on Gershom, and Moses knows what he's doing and he knows why he's doing it because certainly God had been gracious to Moses by giving him opportunity after opportunity to uh, circumcise his sons. But, but Moses would not do that. That's called sin. He was in defiance of God. And even in this moment when God says, okay, enough's enough. I'm patient, but not a pushover. Enough's enough. I'm going to take the life of your son. Even that does not motivate the father, Moses, to obedience. Think about the sheer arrogance of this. He will readily submit the staff to God, but not his son. Think about that. He will submit his staff, his shepherd's staff unto God. Say, God, use it for your good and for your glory. But he will not submit his son unto the Lord, saying, use him for your good and your glory. In essence, he's saying, I care more about what's going to make me look good than I care about my family. That's what Moses is saying. He's saying, I will submit my staff unto you, but not my son. It's Zipporah, the wife, who says, if you, if you don't know what God is up to, if you can't connect the dots, if you don't understand why God is doing this to us, and if you're not going to do your job, I will. And this daughter of a priest who knows the importance of circumcision and probably knows how to do a circumcision, she takes a flint knife and she cuts off the foreskin of her firstborn son. She takes it, touches Moses with it and says, now we're under the blood. Now we are blood relatives. And it was after her action that God relented and he did not take the life of his son. And parenthetically, we're told this is all because of circumcision. Okay, so now you know. Now, you know, I think that's how we need to interpret the passage. And you sit there and you think, wow, that's great. You know, I'm glad I came to church today. I really am. That is phenomenal. Now I have a greater understanding of Exodus 4, 24, 25, and 26. But pastor, what does that have to do with me? And I think that you and I can stand on the authority of the scripture and because of this story, I can make this truth statement. That God cares as much or more about private obedience than public devotion. God cares as much or more about private obedience than public devotion.
Moses is about to do something very public. He's about to go and liberate the children of Israel. They've been in captivity for 430 years. There will be no one greater who walks across the pages of Scripture than Moses himself. He will be elevated as the great deliverer of God's people. Only Jesus will be seen as greater than Moses. He has a very public display of devotion. Yet God says, before I'm going to let you go and do that, you've got to understand that you must submit even the private parts of your life unto me. Because God cares as much or more about private obedience than public devotion. Publicly, Moses is a great deliverer. Privately, his life is riddled with unrighteousness. Publicly, he's charismatic. He's a leader. Privately, his life's a wreck. Publicly, he submits some of the visible parts unto God. Privately, he does his own thing. He's okay with his disobedience. God's not. When I read this passage with this understanding, I realize that one of the things God is saying is that God is as much or more concerned with your private obedience than your public devotion. Publicly, some of us have picture-perfect marriages If you don't believe me, just go on our Facebook pages. Just look at our Instagram accounts. Just take a look at the Christmas cards that we send to each other. We look like publicly we've got a picture-perfect marriage. Privately, there's fussing and cussing. Behind the doors of our house, it is a marathon of misery. There's the... Breaking of chairs and the breaking of promises. There's the slamming of doors and the slamming of hearts. God cares as much or more for private obedience than public devotion. Some of us not only have a picture-perfect marriage, but we are model parents. There are people that actually come to us and and ask the question, how do you do what you do? You've done such a great job with your kids. Will you please tell us, how did you do that? And sometimes we drink the Kool-Aid and we think to ourselves, wow, I am a pretty good dad. I'm a pretty good mom. Okay, let me give you some of my best advice on how to raise happy, healthy children. In his book entitled Crazy Busy, Dr. Kevin DeYoung devotes a chapter to parenting. In that chapter, he references a survey where children were asked to grade mom and dad on their effectiveness as parents. Now, parents, uh, I want you to know that most of us got a really good grade. In fact, on that survey, most parents received nothing lower than a B. It's pretty good. Not very many C's, D's, or F's, except there was one glaring area where according to the eyes of our children... According to the eyes of children, they said there's one area where mom and dad are grossly deficient and weak. You want to know where that was? Anger management. In the eyes of our children, they think that we have anger issues. Too many moms and dads flying off at the handle. That's what the survey said. Publicly, model parents. Privately, volatile in our verbal vomit that we spew to our children. And there are many things that can really get on our nerves and make us angry. And oftentimes, it's our children that get the front row seat of our unrighteousness. 
What I say to you this morning, I have to remind myself at times, and I have to remind Moses repeatedly throughout this study, that when anger gets the best of us, it reveals the worst in us. Why even talk about this? Because God cares as much or more about private obedience than public devotion. Publicly, we are dynamic worshipers. We are fully engaged, hands raised, eyes closed. But when the lights go off and the music fades, that same passion with which we worship does not translate into everyday life to the point that we don't even uh, read our Bibles. We've got to dust them off every seven days because we've got to bring them to church. Why? So we can look good. It's not so much we want to be good, not so much we want to do good, but more than anything else, we want to look good. Why? Because public devotion, that's what we're after. If we're publicly devoted, then we get the pats on the back. So public devotion. But all my friends, God is as much or more concerned about private obedience than public devotion. Publicly, we are havens of holiness. We know what to say and we know how to bounce away. But privately, far too many of us are caught in pornography. We are in the seductive web of immorality. More than we would want to admit or count. Involved in a unbiblical sexual relationship. Say, Pastor, how can you say that? The surveys say the same things. They are consistent. One out of every two self-professing religious men. One out of every five self-professing religious women. Four out of every ten pastors caught in pornography. These are self-professing religious people. I'm not talking about people outside the stained glass window. I'm talking about people inside the church. One out of every two men. One out of every five women. Four out of every ten pastors that you see caught in the web. Of pornography. You don't see that publicly. No, because we have public devotion, but it's the private parts that we say are off limits to God. And we're okay with that, but God's not. At another church, I knew of a man who led a small group of teenage boys in a D now experience. And on that Monday night, He was caught trying to hook up and meet up with somebody he just met on the internet. How is that possible? It's possible because sometimes we major on the public devotion to the neglect of private obedience. Sometimes we have lives that are riddled with unrighteousness. Nobody else knows about it, but we do. You say, well, pastor, you haven't hit me yet. Maybe I haven't. But I have been intentional enough that the Holy Spirit is now hitting you and showing and illuminating. It may not be those specific things, but it may be something else that you just kind of sweep under the carpet. That you say is okay with you, but it's not okay with God. See, oftentimes we tell ourselves we want to build a caricature of a lost person as someone who is immoral, drunk, a drug addict, and curses every other word. Yet, my friend, I have known lost people who do not cheat on their wives. 
I know lost people that do not drink. I know lost individuals who have no drug problem. And I know lost people that speak better uh, by not even using curse words, better than some church people that have been in church all their life. I know some individuals who morally may look better on the moral compass than you and I look. My friend, if the only thing that's different between us and a lost person is that we spend three hours a week in church, yet we spend the other 165 hours of the week doing the same things that the lost people do, that's probably a pretty good indication that our lives are riddled with unrighteousness. See, what Jesus wants from us is for us to heed and hear the words of Exodus 4. Don't just gloss over it. Don't just say, well, I don't understand that passage. I can't understand that passage. It has nothing to do with me. Yes, it does. The best thing God did for Moses is he knocked him on his backside. The best thing God did for Moses is stop him dead in his tracks. The best thing, the kindest thing, the most gracious thing God ever did for Moses is say, Moses, before we take one step forward, we've got to get this straight. You know, the best thing God could do for some of us today is to knock us on our backsides. The best thing God could do for some of us today is to stop us dead in our tracks And say, listen, God says I am as much concerned about the private areas of obedience than public devotion. I think what God wants from his church is for us to be OCD. I'm not talking about obsessive compulsive disorder. I'm talking about us being obsessively compulsive in our devotion to Christ. He wants us to be OCD followers of him. Why? Because God cares as much or more for private obedience than public devotion. This morning, we offer the invitation. The invitation is simply come to Christ. Maybe you need to come because you've never made a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need to come today and say, I need this Jesus to clean up my mess up. I need for him to come be the savior of my life, publicly and privately. My friend, if that's you today, I want you to come. Pastors will be here and we'll receive you gladly. But there are many more of us. And we are believers in Christ. All of our sins been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. But the truth of the matter is that when the magnifying glass of scripture is placed over our life, we look more like Moses than we would ever want to admit. Publicly, we're going to liberate God's people. We're going to set them free. We're going to be the great mighty deliverer. Publicly, devotion, but privately, a wreck. And what God wants to do today with some of us is to stop us dead in our tracks and say, before you walk out of here, surrender and submit everything to Christ. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. And in his presence, I'll daily live. So I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender it all, whether it's public or private. Because God cares as much or more about the private obedience than public displays of devotion. Heavenly Father, we give you this invitation. Father, I know and you know the altar ought to be full. I know and you know that your word is sinking deeply into the hearts of your people. And oh, Father, I pray that by your spirit's power, you will do the work that you need to do today in me, in us, for your good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.